This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat, which is presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. I'm Guy Eakin, the Vice President for Scientific Affairs at Bright Focus. And for those of you who have been loyal chat participants over the last year, you'll notice that our format and our topic are just a little bit different this month. So many people, as you know, use this time of year for reflection and taking stock of people or things that they're grateful for. And on today's chat, we're certainly going to do both of those, but we're also going to take a look back at some of the ongoing research that's, uh, that's happening out there in the world and get a, get a glimpse of a few projects that we think are just particularly innovative and promising. So we're, we're very pleased to welcome three Bright Focus-funded researchers who are all involved in making advances in macular degeneration. And we're, of course, very grateful to to them for their dedication to bettering the lives of people with macular degeneration. And we are, as I'm sure they're all too, very grateful to everyone who's on the line today and to the donors all over our country who've made it actually possible to fund these researchers that you're going to be hearing from. So with that, let me go ahead and welcome these speakers. We have Dr. Brian McKay, who's a professor at the University of Arizona. And his work has been in international news quite a bit recently because of a recent discovery that a drug used to treat Parkinson's disease may help people with macular degeneration. We're also going to hear from Dr. Maria Grant, a clinician scientist from Indiana University, who's looking at how adult stem cells might assist in repairing damaged blood vessel networks in the, in the retina. And we're also going to be very pleased to, to welcome a longtime friend, Dr. David Pepperberg, who researches methods to restore vision loss to diseases like macular degeneration and does so at the University of Illinois at Chicago. But before we get into that call, I'd like to mention that if you have a question that you'd like to ask about any of these projects at any time during today's call, press star three to submit your question to an operator. And so if you're disconnected for any reason at all, there's a number to call back in. That number is 877-229-8493. And then you'll be asked to punch in the ID code, which is 112435. Again, that ID code is 112435, and the number to call is 877-229-8493. So Brian, Maria, David, welcome to the chat. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So as we as we know, we uh, we host these calls monthly, and we do collect questions that our participants submit to us. And there's always one or two who who ask about the uh, about the hope for new treatments. And recently, we had a question submitted by Melanie, who uh, works with seniors in in Colorado, that sums up that theme very well. She asks, you know, what research method for AMD could be helpful? to people in the next five years as compared to treatments that might be 20 years down the road. And she says that she works with seniors and they're doubtful there will be any breakthroughs in their lifetime. So we'd like to start to address that type of question today. And we're going to give each guest about five to ten minutes to talk about their own contributions. But but the, I'd like to start with Dr. McKay, you know, whose technologies might, might be the closest to that five-year horizon. So, Brian, you, you've had a busy few weeks since your paper was published, <laughs> and that, 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 that paper describes this uh, potential use of, uh, of L-DOPA, which uh, many people in the audience know as a Parkinson's disease drug. But uh, could you 
Could you bring our participants up to speed on on what that buzz is all about? Sure, sure. So we did a we did a retrospective clinical uh, study with about a quarter of the population of the United States. We had 87 million participants in this. If you've been to a doctor uh, in the last four years and had a medical insurance claim, you're actually in the database. Um, it's all de-identified and stuff. And we just asked this very simple question: Are the people who take L-dopa protected from AMD? And so it's a it's it's actually it intellectually it's a very simple question, right? So we looked, and it turns out the average age of onset of AMD is about 71 years old, and we can the people taking L-dopa got it. Average age of onset was around 79 years of age. So it looks like it's protective. And then we looked at the odds ratios and the risk factors, and it turns out that many fewer people who take L-DOPA get AMD, so it reduces the risk of the disease. So it looks like it can both prevent and delay the onset. And the reason we actually asked the question is because I've been studying the, the puzzle of pigmentation and retinal degeneration. So it turns out that about 54% of white people when they lose vision, they're losing vision to AMD. But in black people, only 4.4% of black people lose vision to AMD. So there's a very strong racial bias here for this disease, and it actually extends to Hispanic people. So it looks like pigmentation and race have something to do with the disease. It also turns out that glaucoma kind of goes the other way. So 6.4% of white people lose vision to glaucoma, but 26% of black people lose vision to glaucoma. So the two number, the number one and number two cause of blindness in our country are somehow tied to race and pigmentation, but how, we don't really know. So that's, that's what my lab has been doing. And we know that actually pigmentation is important even earlier on during retinal development because if you have albinism, the lack of pigmentation in the tissue that supports the retina called the retinal pigment epithelium, the RPE, lack of pigmentation there, you don't really get proper retinal development. And what they actually lose most uh, most uh, most of the time, it's, it's variable, but is actually the macula. So it's almost like a genetic macular degeneration. Albinos frequently don't actually get that structure in their retina. So we know somehow that pigmentation is tied to this. So what my lab has done is we actually made a kind of an interesting model system where we, we made pigmented cells from the retinal pigment epithelium and then compared them to non-pigmented cells from the same donor, same tissue, and we investigated how do they interact with neurons. And we discovered that the pigmented cells make a lot more of a very important protein called pigment epithelial-derived factor. It's one of the most potent neurotrophic factors in, in, in the eye, but also in the, in the body. It's also a very potent anti-angiogenic, so it turns off new blood vessel growth while supporting the retina. So we've discovered that that is tied somehow to the pigmentation pathway. So we went after that and tried to figure out how. So we discovered that there's actually a receptor in the retinal pigment epithelia that binds to an intermediate of the pigmentation pathway, which turns out is L-DOPA. So there's actually an L-DOPA receptor. So when people take L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease, there, it actually is given to them because it can cross the blood-brain barrier and it gets to dopaminergic neurons where it's actually converted to dopamine. 
But in the eye, that's probably not how this is working. There's actually a receptor for this molecule that we discovered. And when we interact with that receptor with the ligand, we control PEDF. So if I, if I take that ligand and I add it to retinal pigment epithelial cells, I can control their ability to support the retina. So this may actually tie back to albinism, which we have in our second, uh, second stage of a clinical trial. It may go back to being able to prevent AMD, which this morning I was working on putting together a clinical trial for that. And it may actually even tie somehow to glaucoma in the end. Um, we don't know that one, that one quite as clearly yet. But by looking at this, um, we actually found in three different data sets um, from the Marshfield Clinic, there's two non-intersecting data sets there, and then the Truven Market uh, Insurance Claim Database, we got kind of the same answer in all of it. So we get AMD, if you take L-DOPA, AMD shows up at 79.3 years of age, and without L-DOPA, it's showing up at 71.4 years of age. What, an interesting thing that we also found was that people who take dopamine agonists that they usually largely are kind of selective for the D2 receptor family of dopamine receptors. They were, they were actually protected, not as strongly, but they were protected. And this could be because the receptor that we found that binds L-DOPA endogenously, it actually interacts with dopamine too. So the, the selective agonist that we've created that hit D2 may also hit the GPCR that, that um, is the receptor for L-DOPA. So we well, think you, we might... Tested, Brian. As you as, as you tested this, uh, you know, one of the astounding things to me is that you're you're in an area where something that has been a a basic sciences that you know, 15, 20 years ago, might have taken us 10 or more years to even think about getting into a clinical trial. You were able to really rapidly move into a, into asking questions about about humans using these medical records. Yeah, you know, what was that process right? How many medical records did you hit in that process? Eighty-seven million. It's a quarter of the population. Holy moly. So it's it's not a small study. You know, so when you look at the SD on the bars here in front of me, I'm looking at the graph. There, you can't. It looks you can't even see the SD bars. They're so small. So yeah, it's it's. It's big, and it allows you to, you know, these huge data sets allow you to mine for things where overall in the data set, 5.4% of the population in the data set had AMD or, or had a record of AMD, and only 1.5% had Parkinson's. So you take, it takes a tremendous number of individuals to actually see 1.5% of 5.4% and then ask for, you know, age. You know, it, but it at the same time, you say that, and I hear that one in 20 people in our medical system have AMD, which you know, speaks to just how prevalent a disease it is. Yeah, that, that, that's, that is very true. It, it's a very prevalent disease. But when you, when you try to mix two diseases together, it gets, because you know, Parkinson's, although it's very common, it's only 1.6% of the population. So when you take 1 in 20 and then take 1.6% of that, it takes a large data set in order to see anything. Well, that's really exciting. So, so what, are the, what are the next steps specifically about this idea that, that L-DOPA, well, it might be doing something in terms of delaying or even preventing macular degeneration. So what, what are the next steps for you and your research group? 
I was on the phone this morning with Murray and with some other people, and we're working on putting together the clinical trial. Um, it needs a prospective clinical trial, and I think that uh, with Murray's genetic information and his ability to select the people that are at the greatest risk, we can shorten up the time frame for the trial, which, you know, rather than being seven years, which is kind of what NIH or NEI kind of thinks is right, we should be able to shorten this up to many fewer people genetically by saying these these people are at very high risk of developing this disease, and so are these, and then put those two groups either plus L-DOPA and minus L-DOPA and get through the clinical trial faster. Well, that's it's obviously it's just a really exciting line of work, and we wish you the best on that as you as you begin that that clinical trial. I want we are moving along in time. I want to shift the conversation over to to Doctor to Doctor Grant. So Maria, do we have you on the line? Hey, great, thank you. Um, well, I'd like to just mention a few things about the work that we're doing as the body, that everyone's body, has an amazing regenerative capacity, and unfortunately, at the age, that capacity is reduced. So what my lab focuses on are strategies to try to enhance the reparative capacity, strategies to enhance the ability of the body to heal itself and to compensate for factors such as aging and stress. And so what we've studied and been able to show is that the bone marrow, which is a source of reparative cells, <clears throat> has um, tremendous capacity to um, release cells uh, following certain types of stimulation and to put these cells into the circulation where then they can go and repair damaged tissues. And these damaged tissues can represent the um, blood vessels in the retina. It can re represent cells such as the retinal pigment epithelial cells, the cells that are the targets of what Brian was just talking about, the um, L-DOPA, the receptor for L-DOPA. So these um, bone marrow drive cells have tremendous ability to help the reparative process. And they do this by primarily by providing factors, um, trophic factors that support a injured or um, a compromised cell. And what they do is they provide factors or certain substances that that cell needs to become healthy again. And so um, in sort of in, to make kind of a many years of research in condense it in a short period of time, things and to make it a little bit more, um, I think, uh, understandable, there are certain things, even exercise has the capability of mobilizing these cells into the circulation, emphasizing the important part of exercise as one gets older, as one, you know, to, to, to maintain the natural reparative capacity. We're currently doing a study that um, in act, using acupuncture, which stimulates certain uh, parts of the central nervous system to release these cells into the circulation. And so there, there are ways that are not invasive or particularly um, harmful in the sense of or, or cost much money, such as certain drugs that um, we, we don't use pharmacological approaches. We're using primarily natural approaches, the acupuncture as well as um, uh, exercise. And so what we're able to show is, in, in, in comically, even doing exercise studies in rodents or acupuncture studies in rodents, that these cells can increase, they can leave the bone marrow and leave other sources, other little niches where these cells uh, live dormant. And they're released into the blood to be able to go out and repair. 
so what we've been able to show is that you can, in the rodents, that you can increase by 300% the levels of these cells in the blood by um, the simple things such as acupuncture or the simple things such as um, exercise. And, but it's kind of uh, intense exercise. So um, the, the, the idea here, once again, is that if we can uh, restore the regenerative capacities and we can potentially prevent diseases like age-related macular degeneration or diseases that have vascular compromise such as diabetic retinopathy. And, and Maria, your your work is really far-ranging, and you, you mentioned the macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, and you sort of bridged from working in this world of uh, of adult stem cells so these are stem cells that one finds in the in the bone marrow as a possible uh, as a possible therapy or a solution to uh, to these visual disturbances but you bridge that with some really interesting things around acupuncture and exercise and we have one question coming in uh, Jackie from New Jersey you know asking about about saffron, and uh, you know, you're you're a clinician. I'm sure you get asked about nutrition, you know, any day of the week. Um, and maybe uh, you know, saffron is not something I've heard so much about in the terms of macular degeneration. But from the standpoint of when you look at the literature around acupuncture or around nutrition or 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 you know, uh, exercise, as you mentioned, you know, what what do you think? People should keep in mind as they're as they're looking at those studies. And you know, where, how do you decide what's the when you hear something out there in the news? What 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 should be your red flags? What should be your green flags on on whether to move move forward with those? Okay, that's that's a great question. The, the, I think that you know to maintain some level of rigor, has there been a clinical trial? Um, or has there been basic research to support the actual benefit? It's, it's very difficult, as Brian um, uh, alluded to. These trials take a long time in humans, but there are, you know, animal models that sometimes can recapitulate the, the key aspects of a human trial. And so, if if, if there is a, a a particular study that, or if there isn't a study, um, that, that that may be a, a point to just put the material sort of in context. Uh, is there research to substantiate the claims that are being made by the person writing the article or by um, other groups that are, are putting that concept forward. You know, um, I think the, a, a really important idea to keep in mind with regard to um, interpreting studies that, that get to the lay press is the fact that are they done by um, researchers that are funded by by agencies such as by Focus or by the NIH, and what we call the process is peer-reviewed. So the research, even before it started, has been reviewed by by colleagues to assess is it is it reasonable. And then, in addition, uh, if there's a paper that comes out substantiating the, re the concept, like this particular may be beneficial for AMD, and that's important because once again, that's the process of peer review where other scientists have critically looked at the work and assessed it. And to be able to get funded to do the research or to get a manuscript or paper, is it, 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 it means that that work has gone through that process, which is really uh, important. And um, you know, that's one good thing. The other thing is, is, you know, if you're reading the article, does that make sense? Does it capture some process that 
that is logical. So, I mean, I think that all these nutraceutics or agents that are, are popularized now, um, once again, there may be or may not be a study. There may be something to substantiate it. Um, you know, I've, I've been, my own lab has been interested in acupuncture. That, is, interestingly, has been around for centuries, but the mechanism hasn't been well established. And one thing that we've been able to do is show that behind all the history, behind all the experience of centuries, our actual our mechanisms, that the certain points we use, for example, the certain points that we use in acupuncture to stimulate the release of stem cells are points that activate the sympathetic nervous system. And we know from other studies that the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for the release of stem cells. So it's sort of a logical kind of progression. And I think when you read papers, whether they're in the lay press or in the scientific, um, in scientific venues, you know, the logical progression is an important thing to keep in mind. Well, it's amazing. I don't think before speaking with you today that uh, very many people would link acupuncture to the to the release of stem cells, and so the, these are things that certainly we hear a lot about, you know, in our own private lives. But to know that there's a science going on behind that is is really quite extraordinary. I appreciate you taking the time to to describe that to us. You know, you start to get into sort of the the process of science, and that that that's important. And you know, I know that Bright Focus we we helped you with a uh, with with an ambitious grant to look at some of these early early stem cells, and you went on to take some of that that data and take those those bone marrow stem cells and go and get an NIH grant. And can can you tell us about what what that is and what that where that NIH grant is taking you next? Okay, for sure. Um, what we're doing is taking uh, human cells from individuals that have age-related macular degeneration, so patients that have the disease and healthy controls, and we're looking at their stem cells for their how vi vital they are, their vitality. Are, is there a difference in individuals that have age-related uh, macular degeneration versus healthier adults, aged adults? And so the, the idea is, is there an intrinsic defect? So that's one question. The other is that we're able to by genetically modifying the bone marrow stem cell, we are able to kind of guide its direction and kind of prompt it to become a, uh, a certain type of cell. And what we've been studying, these are all animal model work, we've been able to show that they have, with the right kind of provocation, they can become retinal pigment epithelial cells. But they don't do it in a, they do it sort of in a very interesting way. The stem cell is programmed while it travels from the blood towards the eye, towards the back of the eye, it's kind of thinking about becoming the cell, sort of. And this is the easiest way to describe it. When it gets to the injured area in the eye, then the environment that the stem cell is attracted to then helps uh, differentiate it, helps make that cell become the retinal pigment epithelial cell in, in sort of a stage process. So the, the cell has the genetic um, cue to become that cell that we artificially gave it, and then the environment of the injured retina takes the cell the rest of the way. So it's a combination approach where um, the, the, the context in which the cell needs to go helps provide the uh, stem cell with the information it needs 
to become a uh, retinal pigment epithelial cell. And so this is the, the, the process that we have um, uh, been examining in the NIH grant. And the idea is uh, we use mice that are humanized in the sense that they don't reject the human cells. So we're trying to uh, more um, to, to make them uh, closer to what could potentially in the future be done in patients. This is obviously nothing that would happen um, soon, but it's the kind of thing in the future by using these mice that can accept the human cells, we're just a little bit closer to the idea because we're actually taking human cells, manipulating them, and driving them to become a new, new cell, the cell that is injured in the back of the eye. The retinal pigment epithelium. Well, well, thank you, thank you so much. And I, I think we hear so much in the news about personalized medicine. And you know, this is this is one of those places where we're looking at an idea of taking a patient's own adult stem cells and you know, nudging them in the direction of of becoming a, a new tissue that would be therapeutic and that would be a replacement for for the cells that are being lost in macular degeneration. But we, we thank you so much, Maria, for, for giving us some, some time to, to talk about these ideas. If anybody has a question, I want to remind, that you, remind you, you can press star three at any time to leave a message and uh, talk to one of our operators, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll try to get those questions uh, addressed to our, to our speakers. We've been going through sort of a wild and woolly world of uh, L-DOPA, you know, a Parkinson's drug. We've talked about adult stem cells and exercise and acupuncture. And I want to move on to hear from Dr. Dr. David Pepperberg, and we're, we're going to be excited to hear about his work that, that is, uh, that, that's also in the news in different ways. So we, we hear the word prosthesis often. And we, we talk about artificial legs, or we talk about artificial joints, and we have this concept that they might be electronic or made up of sophisticated plastics or, or, you know, or metals. You know, but, what, but David, your, your project, one of the ones that we, we supported, was to develop something that I, I've heard you call a chemical prosthesis. And so yes. that fascinated yes fascinated me. So, so can you give us an idea of what a chemical prosthesis is and how that's going to work in the eye? Sure. Uh, I'd be glad to uh, uh, briefly summarize uh, what we're up to in that project. And, be, and before I uh, uh, give my little summary, let me, I'm sure I speak for Maria and, and, and Brian here and all of our uh, colleagues in, in the research area of what a wonderful job uh, Bright Focus is doing in, in uh, uh, networking, um, uh, networking uh, occasions like this. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's obvious uh, to the whole world what our passion is in, in driving this science forward. But uh, Bright Focus uh, is really uh, in, in, uh, 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 among the uh, head and shoulders above uh, so many other uh, uh, operations in really being so proactive to bring together uh, uh, those of us who are in the science and those of us uh, for whom we're hoping to develop these new cures. It's, it's just terrific. I, I just want to thank you. So th this well, project... All part uh, of a team. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. This, this project you're referring to, Guy, is one that, that yes, uh, you can think of this as a chemical prosthesis or, or others um, um, uh, other, uh, in other contexts. Uh, one, uh, we hear the term nanotechnology, uh, that is the construct of molecular size new structures 
that uh, we and others are using in this case to develop uh, what we hope will be therapies for restoring vision that's lost in advanced stage macular degeneration. You mentioned, Guy, electronic prosthesis uh, uh, that, uh, uh, as your um, uh, listeners know, um, are already in their first generation available um, and uh, patients have been treated, but the great limitation of these electronic prosthesis is simply that you cannot get what we call the spatial resolution, the ability to achieve the sharpness, the acuity that the normally functioning retina has due to the limitations of electronic circuitry. What I and my colleagues have been working on is to design to create new molecular size structures that we can specifically interface with what we call inner cells of the retina. Now, what do I mean by that? Macular degeneration primarily targets, as we've heard already in uh, this morning, uh, today's conversation, primarily targets the retinal pigment epithelium, an important tissue that specifically supports the function of the photoreceptors of the retina, the rods and cones. And when one or both of those two tissues is under attack and um, deteriorating and dying in AM, you have a situation, as we now know, where cells of the retina to which the photoreceptors ordinarily communicate their visual signals in the healthy retina often remain potentially capable of function, but because of the macular degeneration disease, what we call the upstream, the start of the visual process, can no longer send appropriate signals to those inner cells of the retina. What we are doing is to develop molecular size structures that we can simultaneously target to specific cell types of the inner retina. Retinal ganglion cells are the, the key target cell type here because it's the ganglion cells that represent the output of the retina and which ordinarily send visual signals to the brain. What we're trying to achieve is to be able with um, a, a suitable introduction of these agents into the eye to target them, to bind to key proteins on the retinal ganglion cells at, that make those ganglion cells directly in response to light able to fire or to generate their electrophysiological signals that we hope can mimic those that in the healthy retina would be coming from the rod and cone photoreceptors. The overall idea, in other words, is to be able, if you think of a, of a bypass on a highway where there's an accident on the road and the, um, uh, the workers have arranged a, a detour to leave the highway and, and, and come back on at a later point, the idea is to bypass the problem, the dead and dying photoreceptors of the retina, and to bypass functionally the visual process by making the downstream that is going around the problem and making the downstream output cells of the retina, the retinal ganglion cells, directly responsive to light. Our work uh, is, is at a stage we're very excited about it, and we've had what we think is good progress in the cells types that we have been uh, testing these structures. We're at the point now of applying this in animal studies to retinal cells themselves where the photoreceptors have been either by genetic means or other means impaired and which can serve as a good model for the disease. 
So as I say, we're very excited about this. Uh, if we can make this to work, we think it offers uh, uh, the potentially uh, the, the hope for a restoration of at least a good degree of vision by making those retinal ganglion cells that themselves are not at all directly involved with light absorption directly responsive to light and able to generate signals that the brain can interpret as a visual scene. So it's really interesting. So you you have a a situation where we have a disease where photoreceptors are dying and and you in some sense have said, well, you know, maybe we don't need those photoreceptors. Maybe maybe we can replace them with this with this chemical that you've that you've built. And I I think you know, one of these things is of of the three technologies we we've, we've heard about today, perhaps this one that might be the most distant in the future, but you know, one of the questions is what what do you think of when you think of how what's the routes of administration how would this how would this chemical get into the eye and you know have you started to give thoughts as to what what this would look like when converted into not just a an engineering project in your laboratory but when it's converted into that medicine that we actually think will be going forward and being in in patients one day Sure, that's a very important question, and it's one that we're uh, directly uh, working on. Uh, By analogy, or let me say what I think is our um, hypothesized uh, desirable route, and that would be a direct injection into the eye of the patient of a small quantity of this active molecular structure that can seek out and bind to the ganglion cells as they need to do. There's plenty of precedent for uh, for injecting test agents and therapies uh, into the eye, as many of your listeners may know, for um, for, um, um, neovascular, so-called wet age-related macular degeneration. The standard of treatment these days is uh, injection by the ophthalmologist of one of several types of uh, what we call anti-VEGF therapies, and these, we're talking now simply about the kind of route that we uh, suspect may be workable for the agents that we're developing. This is to say that these days, uh, patients come in all the time for such treatments, typically on a monthly or every other month or several month basis, and of course, there's active work to be further developing the efficacy of those drugs so that fewer uh, fewer, uh, delivery uh, of uh, procedures are needed, but uh, as you're asking, uh, what uh, can we envision right now as the starting point for introducing and delivering those materials? And there's great precedence uh, from the fact that safely and efficaciously, therapies like therapies that are anti-VEGF therapies are being done um, all the time for many, many patients. If you could say something briefly, one of the other other areas of your laboratory, this isn't the only hat you wear, but you also have some interesting areas of work that draw on knowledge from the field of Alzheimer's disease, which is incidentally another interest of the Bright Focus Foundation, but you've been drawing on Alzheimer's disease to look at whether that that field and macular degeneration might be able to share some insights with one another to make advances in both fields. So could you say briefly what's going on there? Sure, exactly. And um, uh, this uh, this uh, second of our two lines of focus uh, here uh, is, uh, as with the first, extremely exciting to us and a very recently initiated project uh, that uh, Bright Focus has been so generous in helping us get off the ground with this. 
Um, as, as many of your listeners may know, a molecule that we call amyloid beta, or often abbreviated when we talk about it as A-beta, amyloid beta is a protein that for many, many years um, has been investigated in the context of diseases of the central nervous system, of brain diseases, notably Alzheimer's disease, as well as other brain neurodegenerative diseases. Now, there is a huge literature investigating the role of A-beta in uh, uh, brain diseases like Alzheimer's, and it's fair to say that while there much, much remains unknown, even today, there is little doubt that this that the dysregulation of this protein, which has certain physiological functions, but when the regulation of the levels of that protein in the brain become dysregulated uh, and not, not carefully controlled by other processes going on in the nerve tissue, you have problems that most people believe are contributing substantially to the development of the disease uh, in the brain, that is Alzheimer's. Now, in recent years, and so far having been investigated only a tiny extent uh, compared to the extensive work in brain, there is occurring, or I should say there are indications in several respects that amyloid beta in the eye tissues may be contributing in certain ways to the development of a key neurodegenerative disease of the retina, namely age-related macular degeneration. There's no doubt that amyloid beta exists in the eye tissues, the retina and the retinal pigment epithelium. And again, we don't yet know very much about how it works, but there have been the suggestion from several lines of experiment that a dysregulation of that important protein may be uh, a player in the very early progression of the problems that lead to age-related macular degeneration. What we're doing in the Bright Focus supported uh, project is testing the possibility that a specific enzyme, an enzyme that exists naturally in many tissues, uh, but which um, is, um, uh, has not uh, uh, really been investigated for its potential uh, therapeutic action when supplemented uh, externally, an enzyme that we call neprilysin, when introduced into the eye, in our case of our experimental animals that have a problem with the dysregulation of amyloid beta, may be able by reducing the buildup of A-beta, that is bringing back into a, um, a nominal okay state, a situation that has gotten out of whack with respect to A-beta, may be able to delay or retard what otherwise may be the development of the disease due to problems of the dysregulation of the A-beta. So in a nutshell, using, using quantities, very tiny quantities, of the enzyme that is known as neprilysin and introducing this into the eye tissue, we're just in the process of looking to see, can we, by reducing, by essentially 
engineering a reduction in what would otherwise be the buildup of amyloid beta delay or retard the deterioration of the eye tissues in a model of age-related macular degeneration. So we're very excited about this. It's at a very early stage, uh, but if we uh, uh, learn from our experiments that this is indeed improving, or I should say retarding the deterioration of the eye tissues, um, we obviously, uh, the, the, this would be, we think, a, a very substantial advance in knowledge with potential therapeutic um, 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 capability. Well, thank you so much, and everybody stay tuned because those, those connections between lots of neurodegenerative conditions we've been exploring today, we've heard about Parkinson's and macular degeneration, We've heard about diabetic retinopathy and now connecting in Alzheimer's disease with macular degeneration, possibly. So we'd like to segue over to a couple of the questions, and we don't have terribly much time remaining, but there are, there are some questions. Most notably, we have, uh, if doctor, if we have Dr. McKay still on the line. We have some I'm questions. I'm still right here. All right. So we have some questions about, uh, about L-DOPA. One of the questions come, comes in asking and uh Pardon, I, I don't have the uh, don't have the um, the name of the person. I, I think it was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was Jerry from Michigan, asking if L-DOPA might help prevent dry AMD from advancing further to the uh, toward the to the more advanced or wet forms of the of the disease. And certainly, we heard about in in the in the records you looked at, we heard about prevention and we heard about delay uh, of diagnosis of AMD, but what do we know about progression of the disease? Did you see that in your research? That's what the clinical trial is for. We can't see it with the, with the records because they're static, so I can't see movement. I, do, I, do I think it's the right way to go? Yes. Do I think it will work? Of course I do. do I, can I prove it? No, not yet. We need to do clinical trial. The clinical trial is the only way to answer the question. So I, I, I know that we had uh, talked ahead of, ahead of time, and there is a registry for this clinical trial. So if, there's, if there are people yes. who would like to participate, um, my understanding is that University of Arizona is collecting those names. And if anybody would like to stay on after the line, uh, after the call ends, then we can uh, we we've been given some of that information by the university and can and can share that with uh, anyone else. So there's a question though here that comes from uh, from Leonard from New York saying, okay, in advance of that clinical trial, is it desirable for an elderly person to try the L-DOPA approach? Uh, you know, it's a it's a here's a, you have an approved drug and you have a suggestion that it might help. So outside of that clinical trial, you know, what what are the risks and you know, is there you know, what are the typical side effects? Of, uh, of L-DOPA? Well, to, to the first real extent, I'm not an MD. I have a PhD, so I can't practice medicine. Um, so I cannot tell people what to take or what not to take. On the other hand, um, as a scientist, I can tell you that for normal people without Parkinson's disease, L-DOPA doesn't appear to be uh, particularly dangerous. All drugs can have effects um, but this has been around since the 60s, and it appears to be well-tolerated in most people. That doesn't mean everyone. So I would say talk to your doctor about it. I, and that's typically the, uh, the advice that the Bright Focus Foundation gives 
is that we do wait for the evidentiary basis of all of these decisions uh, because they're, they're, clinical trials are, are very important to how we find out that the drugs work, but it's also how we find out how drugs work. And, uh, and so uh, the clinical trial, uh, we, we, it, when the results of that clinical trial come out, you will, you will be the first to know through, through Bright Focus and many other, many other places. Let's see, do we have any other, uh, any other calls coming in? So we, uh, do we still have Maria on the line? We're here. Yeah. Uh, hi. Yeah, so um, there was a, uh, a similar question about, uh, from, from Bruton from, from California whose eyesight is perhaps too far gone you know, for, for most of the projects we've talked about, but asked about acupuncture in, from the standpoint of late-stage disease. So similar to the L-DOPA question, what do we, what do we know about, about acupuncture and macular degeneration? Can you say anything about the literature in that area? Um, I can. There isn't any yet. Um, there, sadly, um, the, the, I, I probably should explain that the acupuncture points that we have been studying for the last five years that we feel um, are conducive to the release of the natural, uh, of the stem cells from the niches, it, not just the blood vessels, not just the bone marrow, but just throughout the body, those particular points have been used from you know for centuries to treat other types of conditions like arthritis and uh, other types of conditions like that uh, are associated with inflammation. So what we can say there is uh, a considerable amount of data supporting the use of these particular points to reduce inflammation. And one function that we know these stem cells, when they go out into the circulation, they produce factors that are anti-inflammatory. And these um, anti-inflammatory factors have been uh, associated with the, the cures of the cure of arthritis, the cure of asthma, the cure of conditions associated with inflammation. So we do indirectly have evidence. It's just that we've re, kind of redefined what has been known about um, these acupuncture points. Indeed, they've been releasing, likely releasing stem cells for many different conditions that are pro-inflammatory and they've been successful. So it's very indirect evidence. I, I'm not sure that I made myself clear. We're, we're currently doing a study to examine this. We just started it though. And um, we've done a similar study in horses and in rats. And now we're going to be moving forward in patients. But it's um, it's definitely important to realize that there's, there's a lot of knowledge about acupuncture and how effective it can be for certain conditions. But how it be, how why it's effective is is kind of the gap that we're filling in. And these particular six points are very easy. And the trial that we're, we're initiating is basically every two weeks because there's evidence to suggest um, from that two weeks is a good increment. And these cells are released into the blood. They lower the levels of, um, of pro-inflammatory factors down to normal. And then the body is stimulated again, and it's good for two weeks. So conceptually, the idea, there is evidence that inflammation is deleterious to the eye and maybe a contributor in age-related macular degeneration. So it could be 
beneficial and and clearly it's safe it's not harmful and i think as a as a physician scientist i think that's my our first goal is always not to hurt and so this is a very natural way to release stem cells it's it's the way the body does it, not the way, um, you know, certain stem cell therapies now take the cells out and then put them immediately at the site of injury. And and that's a little bit different strategy. This strategy that we're using is much more um, gentler and to be simplistic about it. And it's more kind of the way the natural process of repair occurs physiologically. Well, thank you so much. I think the you know the the answer there here is from from everyone on this call, and the reason we we invited you onto the call as our guest today is each of you really are at the cusp of some really amazing discoveries. And here at the end of the year, thinking of everything that we're thankful for, it really is all of the work that's going on by the researchers, you and those around you who are making inroads into this really horrible disease, and certainly our. Our thoughts are going out to the people living with the disease. Some of you are on the call today, and we hope that this has been a really helpful call to understand that we're at the interface of of what has been science fiction becoming science fact. And uh, just very appreciative of everybody on the call today for helping to give us a, a sense of the state of the art. So as we as we wrap up, as we do each month, I'd like to ask the poll question. It's the same poll question as last month or the month before that, and that's a, how do you rate the telephone chat. So if you have a moment and you found that this chat was very helpful, if you could just press 1 on your phone. And if the, if the chat were only somewhat helpful, if you could press the number 2. And if you did not find this chat helpful at all and we, we need to go back to the drawing boards, please press 3. So 1 for helpful, 2 for somewhat helpful, and 3 for no, not, not helpful at all. But it is about all the time we've had to talk about possible treatments of the future. So we, we hope that you found it helpful. We hope that you found it inspiring. And thank you again to all of our guests for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Thank you. Happy holidays to all. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. So within about, a week, within about a week, we'll be posting a recording and a transcript of the call on our website. And, of course, you can also listen and download past chats on iTunes and SoundCloud. So our next chat is going to be AMD, Answers to All Your Questions, and that's going to happen on January 27th. This will be a 100% question and answer chat with you asking the questions and one of our friends from the ophthalmology community taking the time to give you some answers. So we encourage you to register now and submit those questions in advance, and we'll also be sending you a reminder email if you're registered for this call. So if you stay on the line when this call concludes, you can leave a message to register for that January chat and also request transcripts of the call or for yourself or to share with someone that you might think would be interested. Of course, you can always call Bright Focus at one 800 437-2423. Again, that's 1-800-437-2423. Or find any of our resources at our website, www.brightfocus.org. That's O-R-G. Once again, thank you, Brian, Maria, David, for reassuring us that there's so many wonderful people dedicated to finding better outcomes for people with macular degeneration. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the call today. If you'd like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thank you from all of us at the Bright Focus Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.
The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.